Welcome to this episode of Beaverpod, the clinical catch-ups. The following session was recorded live during the Beaver Clinical Catch-ups webinars. For the full webinar experience, Beaver members can find past sessions online via the Beaver website. So I'd like to welcome you all to this June clinical catch-up. Um, I'm not sure what the weather's like with you, but we've got a lovely rainy June day today in, I'm over in Worcestershire. Um, but I'd like to welcome Victoria South from Liphook Equine Hospital. Um, she is going to talk to us about first aid for eyes. Um, Victoria is very well known. Um, I'm sure that you have all met or spoken to her in before. And she is also an RCBS and European specialist in equine internal medicine. So I'll leave it to you, Victoria. If you've got any questions, do either pipe up and unmute or feel free to type them in the chat box and I can pop them to Victoria on your behalf. Brilliant, thank you very much, Sarah. And thank you to um, Beaver for inviting me to come and talk in the clinical catch up. Um, so first aid for eyes. Well, I've just a little bit about me um, for anybody who hasn't met you before. Um, I'm a Cambridge grad. I went into ambulatory practice for the first few years after I graduated. A lovely big mixed practice in the Cotswolds with lots of lovely first opinion equine. And then I moved over to Lippert down in Hampshire to do an internal medicine residency based in private practice. And I'm a medicine specialist at the hospital now and um, do through uh, the laboratory. I speak to lots of vets about clinical cases. It's probably my favourite thing. I was just talking to Sarah earlier about how um, it's probably one of my favourite things to be able to speak to vets about their cases out on the road um, and the dilemmas, diagnostic and treatment dilemmas they have. I'm also currently studying part-time for an MSc at Oxford with a group of mainly doctors um, in evidence-based healthcare. And it's given me a really interesting perspective on lots of different aspects of um, generation of evidence and improving the quality of evidence that um, can be produced from clinicians in practice. But most recently, um, I've also been thinking quite a bit about how we translate evidence into practice and how, whether evidence does exist, how we think about implementing that um, and what those barriers might be, um, which I found a really interesting uh, last couple of years. I'm also a vet mum. Uh, these are my three girls. And I have been delighted to be uh, one of Beaver, Beaver Council's members um, over the last 18 months or so. I've really been um, really thrilled to be part of the team and see the behind the scenes of how such an incredible organisation works and hopefully try to facilitate and, and support some of their really worthy um, industrial endeavours over the last 18 months or so. So thank you very much for anyone who voted me and I've been really delighted to be part of the team. So I, it was actually, I think, me that suggested that one of the clinical catch-ups was I. Um, I think eyes are pretty cool. They're kind of complex and um, often with competition horses and we spend, do a lot of polo work, um, particularly high stakes sometimes and trying to save vision and save a globe. Um, but I think they have some really interesting aspects to them compared to loads of our other problems. And um, so I just wanted to really talk about 
tips on dealing with certain sorts of problems. Uh, these are sorts of things that I thought we could talk about this evening. Corneal ulceration, tips for a solidly, firmly closed eye, and a couple of little bits relating to conjunctivitis or sticky eyes. And I did try to think not just about what I might think are the sorts of problems that come up in, in ambulatory practice, but there's a really lovely, um, very recent paper from Vet Clinics of North America, which have some brilliant clinical summaries, um, which bring together a lot of recent publications on different topics. And, um, and why the author of this particular paper um, did a little retrospective of her five-vet ambulatory practice. It is in the US, so you could imagine this is slightly different to what we might see over here. But um, overall in the year, about 16% of emergency calls were ocular problems, and that went up to 21% um, over the summer months. 68% of corneal ulcers, 22% some form of eyelid swelling, periocular swelling, and other swear things like lacerations. Clearly not my forte as a medicine specialist and conjunctivitis, where I think there are a couple of things that can help us with those um, sometimes underlying reasons for uh, inflammation. So to start with, whatever we think might be going on in terms of these sorts of conditions, do yourself a favour with how we're getting the horse ready and how we're going to make our examination as, as straightforward as possible. If you have a headstand in your car, it will save your back, if, if nothing else, to sedate the horse and be able to have that head at a more comfortable level for you to examine the eye. And it also holds the head steady enough and high enough once they're sedated so that you can do a thorough exam. And part of that is actually asking the owner to be on one side of the horse holding the head firm and almost slightly opposing the pressure you're going to put on as you lean towards the horse and, and have a good look at the eye. If you don't have a headstand with you, a castle of a few bales of shavings or straw really will um, stop you giving up and give you an opportunity to really be able to examine the eyes thoroughly as you want to. And I think that's particularly important if we think that we might be going to do some ultrasound scanning of the eye where you need to have sort of one hand on the horse's head and the probe and the other hand towards your ultrasound machine. And that would be really difficult to do while the horse's head is low and the horse's head is swaying. This picture is really just to remind you that horses do put themselves in really awkward positions even when they're fully awake, let alone when they're sedated. Something else to help um, facilitate that examination, although talking to my colleagues today in the office, um, some feel very firmly that it really helps them with their facilitating a good thorough ophthalmological exam, and others perhaps less so. My feeling was, all, was um, the direction I approach things from was just to make things as straightforward as possible and as easy as possible. And particularly if a horse has an inflamed or very painful eye, then they will have a lot of breath or spasm and they've been probably holding their eye like that for some period of time. So using an erythropalpebral and blocking that motor nerve will enable, I think, enable um, easier examination of the eye. When I, this is actually, um, this particular setup of this slide is from uh, Andy Durham, who's one of my medicine colleagues at Lippert, and he has his syringe pointing in a different direction to this. But I very firmly believe that this is the most useful way of putting the needle in. So feeling over the arch, feeling for that little bundle, which includes the nerve. And then if you think the horse is going to pull its head away from you as it feels the needle go into through the skin. And as it pulls back, if your needle is in this kind of orientation, then it's going to push itself onto the needle. If you come from a different angle, then it's going to ping away from you as it moves its head back. So this just helps to make sure that the needle 
um, it's going to be in the right position, even if the horse jiggles its head a little bit while you're hitting the block in. Um, I probably should also say that I'm pretty inclined to look at both eyes and look at them really thoroughly, especially that first time you're going to examine the animal in it. For the sake of that little bit of extra effort, I would probably block both sides at the same time if you sedated it so that you can get a really thorough look. I think particularly when we're thinking about swollen eyes and the possibility of there being an underlying uveitis, then it's a really good idea to check whether or not there's any evidence of any chronic change on the other side. So as I say, why might I think about blocking the eyelid motor function? I do think it makes the whole optical exam a bit less stressful for concern. You're not having to push so hard on the side of the head, you're just lifting it up with the finger. If you were worried about um, a deep ulcer, or if you really weren't sure what was in the eye, then I think it means that well, you're not quite sure what's underneath, that you aren't putting so much pressure across the globe. So said the blepharospasm could be pretty strong if the eye's been painful. And I think if you've got conjunctivitis or a small ulcer, we do want to be checking for foreign bodies, and that's going to be pretty difficult without a motor block in place. So rather than going through every tiny little step that I might take with examination of these sorts of of um, cases. I, this is a really lovely checklist from the same paper in Dwyer's paper, and Dwyer's paper. And I, I think it's a really nice little summary. And it's not likely that you're going to have this with you to reference, but I think it just um, is that um, just like the clinical examination, we're going to go through the same thing, thinking about the whole horse, thinking about the periopital area, thinking about the globe, position of the eye, pupils, etc., and then rolling through to those different aspects within the globe itself. It's a really great checklist and a great summary. So let's talk a little bit more about corneal ulcer. So the first thing is kind of how did it happen? Are we thinking about this in terms of primary accidental injury, um, sort of superficial traumatic episode? I think that is predominantly what we would expect to find in first opinion practice. Um, the first time that we've been called to have a look at these, these sorts of cases. But... Is it secondary to something else would be what sits in the back of my mind as I'm working through this, this case. I'm thinking, is it just simply primary trauma with no other complicating or additional factors that are going to make this more complex for me to treat successfully? Or are we, are we, is there something else that I need to be looking at? This is just an example of grass seeds, which go everywhere, don't they? Um, it's not just a spaniel problem. Uh, here you can see evidence of um, a significant amount of uh, vascular reaction some corneal edema, and then also associated with a grass seed where this horse has got really quite considerably uncomfortable eye. Um, something to have a really good look at those adnexal structures around to make sure we have identified any other different issues. Something else um, other than the cornea, so something you've got a non-corneal non issue going on at the same time as the ulcer. And one of those most common things would be that there was a primary uveitis that made the eye uncomfortable and painful, and then the horse has caused a traumatic ulcer on top of that, making it much more challenging to look at and treat. When I think about corneal ulceration again, how did it happen? Is it primary trauma or is there something else? And this is an example of a third eyelid with a little bit of local anesthetic and, and retracted to be able to have a look. So if you're seeing uh, corneal ulceration, it might be bilateral or unilateral. Sometimes it is bilateral in these cases. You, if you had a sort of nasal aspect of, of ulceration near the limbal margin, then I would be really inclined to have a look at that third eyelid. 
And you will, in some cases, be able to identify roughening and thickening. Usually the mucosa feels pretty smooth, but within the tissue there is um, lymphoid hyperplasia, which has reached a large enough size to be causing an abrasion and, and therefore disruption of the corneal epithelium and, and an ulcer developing. Probably one of the most important slides for this evening is fluorescine. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, 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 that's just so easy. Just stick it in and off you go. But um, it is worth taking a little bit of time just to review how we how we put the fluorescine in the eye. Important to use a small amount. Um, talking to a group of vets on a CPD event that we ran at Lipper a couple of weekends ago, I think a lot of, of um, those young vets were using minims where there's a little tiny pipette with a pre-made concentration of the fluorescein contained within it. Although I do appreciate a lot of the time people might still be using um, paper fluorescein um, as well. So one thing to do is to make sure it's not dilute. Sometimes people will take those paper fluorescein florets and drop it into a syringe or drop it into a, a, tube, a, a plain tube, shake it with some water and then apply that to the eye. The problem with that might be that it is quite dilute and there might not be um, an appropriate enough uptake compared to the um, presence of stromal and epithelial ulceration that's present. So you may underestimate the severity of the ulcer that's present if the fluorescein is too dilute. The other way around though, it's important to flush away the saline afterwards, with saline afterwards, because um, especially if there is quite a sort of, sort of conjunctivitis or kind of thickening to some of the uh, viscosity in the tear film, then sometimes the fluorescein kind of but if you if you flush with saline, what you'll be left with is just the true defect that is that is the ulcer, as opposed to a kind of hazy green appearance. Now I can't quite see my second bit, but I think that's hopefully what's illustrated there. Just that that um, that little deep concentrated uh, green fluorescent area. Use a blue light to help you. Now some ophthalmology. Um, so some ophthalmoscopes will have a blue light setting. Some of them have a green light setting, which really isn't as good as the cobalt blue light. You can buy um, cobalt blue picky pen lights. That um, I think I called it a light pen, but I mean a pen light. Um, they're pretty cheap to get hold of, just a few pounds. You can get them off Amazon. And um, if you stick that in the car with your other eye kits, then it just allows you to be able to uh, identify that fluorescence more accurately. And there's also something pretty cool called a bluminator, which sounds like the kind of thing my children would love, um, which is in that bottom part of the screen there. And these are LEDs. They have a little lens in them as well. Um, and you can use, they will do the same thing and just create that lovely blue light that enables you to see the fluorescence really accurately. If we don't use stain at all, or if we haven't applied it appropriately, then it's possible that, that we may over or underestimate the ulcer that is present. Here we have an example on the left-hand side where we can see the kind of pattern of weak fluorescein that's just deposited over the surface of the cornea. And if we flush that away, you'll see the true uptake of the true epithelial defect is actually quite small there, but it's almost misleading with the amount that's present. You can see how blue that light is. And on the right-hand side, even through flushing all of that away, it looked like quite a substantial ulcer initially, but once um, the excess was flushed away, you could see that there really was just a very subtle corneal defect remaining in the eye on the right. The next thing to be thinking about with these cases is the 
amount of um, depth and the degree of stromal involvement. Because um, the deeper those lesions are, the more concerned we are and the more likely we are to want to, um, excuse me, the pun, keep a close eye on these cases and perhaps adjust our uh, protocol for antibiotics and monitoring of those cases. And it, in fact, I worry about the likelihood of success in treating these cases. Obviously, the deepest end of that spectrum would be something like this, where we have a dismissive seal. And in this lovely horse, um, he was well into his 20s, and he had a small corneal ulcer, um, which had been treated at home. And he had a um, little bit of a flare, and the vets went back out to him to have another look. And you can, but this is the sort of appearance that we had. So it didn't really take very long for it to um, degenerate in this way. A pretty old controlled Cushing's case. I think he had a few factors that might have tipped him over into having um, this sort of thing occurring. The key thing about this example is that this isn't a donut of an ulcer with a normal amount of epithelium and a, a healthy piece of cornea in the middle. This is a desmetaceal with uh, a deep, such deep stromal um, removal from that central area that we've left behind just as an extending. That didn't end well, that case, by the way, he ruptured whilst we tried to use it upon the flat, uh, contact by the flat to um, resurrect and improve that also, unfortunately. Something else that we begin to worry about are, are there any particularly nasty pathogens present? Um, we think about pseudomonas in terms of melting ulcers, beating lytic strep, and fungi. And really the reason for considering taking samples from our patients, other than the most simple of superficial corneal ulcers, will be to make sure that we don't have these types of pathogens that might need us to do something different in our treatment. So here's just a couple of examples of ways in which we can collect samples from the surface of the cornea. Um, on the left-hand video, we can see, uh, these are two videos from Andy, um, we can see using the non-sharp end of a scalpel blade to be able to scrape and lift away some of the loose cells um, from the surface of the ulcer. And then we can smear that onto a glass slide to submit for cytology. You could also have enough of that material with, with or without a swab then to submit the culture as well. And my preference is a cytological brush, as we can see here. Um, they're pretty cheap and easy to get hold of. And um, we sterilize them. And they have really neat, you know, they're used for, for um, cervical screening and other screening in people. Um, it's a very, very straightforward and nylon bristle brush. It's very easy to use. We do put a little bit of local on, as you can see, this horse is reacting a little bit um, to it. And um, we can roll that over a glass slide to be able to collect and analyze the cytological appearance. And we can also crack it off and submit it for culture as well. You may be that you're going to use a swap for us to do that, but I really like the technique. And I think probably most of us would feel more comfortable with a fluffy brush than the end of the scalp, even if it is the fun thing. So I'm delighted to find out through looking through Beaver's Protect Me um, information on suitable antimicrobial choices for different conditions. A really brilliant resource, by the way, very easy to find on the Beaver website. That's a first choice for mild corneal illustration would be chloramphenicol. Good penetration, broad spectrum, 
very widely available, easy for clients to use, available as anointments and as drops. If we're worried about there being fungi present and we've identified high healing abnormalities on our cytology, then we might be thinking about using things such as boriconazole, fluoroconazole, imiconazole. And again, we might be thinking about some atropine if there's been a significant meiotic response to the level of inflammation on the front of the eye. Brace yourself, I put here, for anticoagulations. <laughs> These conversations every day with our interns and that's too about which one should we be using, what does the literature say, and why do we use different ones in practice. Uh, the first one to say is the EDTA solution. So this is not anything to do with autologous uh, solutions at all. This is just an EDTA tube, so a purple top tube with saline put into it. You can move that saline into a cup of water so that you've got a really concentrated EDTA solution. And in this case, you've got free EDTA salt that can act as an anticoagulase. I'm actually a big fan of this because I think that autologous plasma and serum can be quite irritating to the surface of the eye, especially a painful eye already. And although there are some really commendable properties and, and evidence to suggest that they are effective in inhibiting MIPs, my feeling is that the EDTA solution also, we know from the literature, is a suitable choice and it's much less irritating. So rather than doing many, many repeats through the day of an autologous choice, I will always intersperse that with something which, however you decide to bill it, has got to be as cheap as chips with a small amount of saline in an EDTA tube. Easy for owners to use as well. And then comes the conversation about should it be plasma or serum? And I have to be honest, if I have a look on a vet, vet Facebook page, there's an awful lot of confusion even about the terminology of plasma versus serum and what they mean. Fundamentally, it's a purple top tube with an with EDTA as an anticoagulant in it, that EDTA isn't going to be useful in terms of its own inhibition of, as, as an anticoagulase because it's been bound up in the activity of being an anticoagulant. But what you're left with, if you spin down a purple top tube, sorry to those for whom this is cringeworthy, but I have to promise you it's a conversation we have a lot, you're left with plasma. And that's autologous, it separates easily. As far as I'm concerned, it contains the same stuff as serum, but, but it, in serum, some of those peptides will have clotted and be in the clot. So pretty much everything is going to be the same as what you'd have in serum. But it's so much easier. You don't have to wait for everything to clot. You can just hand it to your clients, a solid tube with whole bloods, tell them to stick it in the fridge, and then they're not having to try and fight with this bobbly little clot in the bottom of the tube to be able to administer the product. Um, and the same thing applies whether it's your techs, nurses, or vets who are trying to do that too. Autologous serum. It's quite sticky. You have to wait for it to clot and maybe spin it down. So I think in terms of trying to get things done quickly on a yard, I think maybe there is an advantage in the plasma. And as yet, I'm not aware of any, any recent evidence that would say that one of these choices is superior to the other in terms of, in terms of its anticoagulant properties. Um, there are also now more advanced products available. Um, along the cascade, we have a small animal licensed POMV acetylcysteine drops and they have a long shelf life once it's open of seven days it's kind of ready-made it obviously isn't autologous so we don't have the advantages we would um, from that um, use in the plasma and serum option but something that uh, people might not be aware of and um, where there is um, a small amount of weak evidence of its effectiveness in 
small animals, hence its um, market authorization, but it's worth a little look at and a few clicks um, to find it. The company's TVM who supply it. Um, and uh, I think in small, those vets who are mixed practices will probably already be aware of it. Even equine, I'm not sure so many would be. So something to, to um, have a think about perhaps. So um, pink lines are hard to treat. Um, we do, clearly when horses are hospitalized, they tend to have more complex or um, severe disease, or they may have had treatment at home that hasn't been successful, hence they're referring us to hospital. But I do feel that for all except fairly simple, uncomplicated corneal it's worth considering and thinking about um, the end user in that. It does mean that with those very, very challenging horses that understand very quickly that when you go to their shoulder to administer the medicine through the catheter, that you are going to do that and it's going to bother their eye, that you can use pressure bulbs and slow release systems. You do then have to choose what it is that you think is the most important part of treatment for that, that eye but it does enable that type of um, treatment in your most challenging patients in terms of their refractoriness to topical medication. Um, maybe this should also be another brace yourself moment. Um, I would prefer placement of pathogens in the lower lid every time. It's ever so slightly more technically demanding. And I guess there's a little bit of a moment of, oh, I've got to go right over the face of the cornea to place this massive stilette through the lower eyelid. But there is a much lower risk of iatrogenic ulceration, especially if you are leaving owners to use these in practice. If the, the catheter slips, so it doesn't stay fixed where you originally inserted it and it drops out, if that's the lower lid and you put it in the right location, then the third eyelid is going to protect the cornea. So the risk of an iatrogenic ulcer is pretty low, if not impossible to happen. In the upper lid, you're going to have a new corneal ulcer because that's a much more mobile area being an upper lid. I think it's really difficult to get it right up in under the socket in, in the very uppermost part of the um, upper lid. And especially if these are eyes being managed at home, that new ulcer could go undetected for a bit of time between your visits. So for me, I think I would really try to encourage the skill of, of placing them in the lower eyelid. Where's the evidence? I'm always looking to see if I can help answer some of these clinical dilemmas. This is a lovely little summary from a um, little cat topic from Harry Carslake, where he reviews the literature that was available. And um, his conclusion is that both sites of SPL placement are associated with an acceptable rate. Um, and I think it says the variety, I can't see that bit of the page, um, complications. So. I think one of the things, if you took the trouble to have a look at this article, which is free access, it's a brilliant little summary, you'll see that some of the problems and limitations with what has been published is that they were retrospective and it's sometimes just the case that more complicated eyes were seen by more experienced clinicians who were more comfortable putting lower eyelid catheters. And that means that you have some confounding factors that may have influenced the overall balance of the complications that were seen. And as I've hopefully talked through, I think there are advantages practically, particularly if you might be leaving an owner to manage a to get comfortable with a lower lid placement. I've done both. I did a eyelid in my first job, and I feel much more confident doing this. So tips for successful placement would be plenty of topical local anaesthetic on the cornea. Uh, local anaesthetic instilled into the subcutis of the nasal aspect of the lower lid. I'll show you what I mean in pictures in a second. 
try to come out low down to face. I mean, not super low down, an inch or two, because I think that secures the catheter in the subcutis under the skin. There's hardly anything there. It does keep a little bit of a brace and a break on the, anything moving at that location. I also don't put a stitch right below the eyelids because I think it increases them being annoyed and rubbing right next to their eye, which we don't want to encourage. Here's a pretty good placement. This horse has actually got a fast orifice, which we'll come on to talk about in a second. Um, what I like, I don't think I can... Can you see my arrow? Can you see my cursor, Sarah? Yeah. So you've got your third eyelid here. And if we if we think about coming out in this direction under the skin and coming out down here, then this little section here, it keeps everything really rigid. It's not going to swing anywhere or pull out. It just braces it and breaks it really nicely. And then you've, if you come out down here, you can easily just leave this swinging. You don't have to get a stitch down here. It won't go anywhere. And if it's going to rub, it'll scrub anyway. But it just... I think helps to avoid them being bothered by some jangling and pulling at that location. Sometimes you'll see them coming, people coming out a little bit further over here, which eliminates that benefit of being near the third eyelid. So do come right around the side and come out in a sample kind of parallel with the nose, nasal bone here, um, and then stitch through at the top. I think I've got a couple more examples. I like this one this one on the right-hand side. I'm a bit less of a fan of this one here. I think this is too far over. I think someone's not been brave enough to go right the way around to the side. And um, we these days wouldn't be too worried about not having these kind of green things right next to the side of the eye here. I think they, they, they are much less bothered than we think by having it left loose like that. So there's my arrow saying, move it over a bit. So what sort of things to think about? Just decide on what to think about if things aren't going so well. Um, the first thing would be to repeat the cytology um, because it could be that there have, that things have changed. It could be that there is colonization by um, a bacteria that hasn't been uh, successfully treated. More likely, it could be that if it's become an in indolent um, or an ulcer that's persisted for some time, that there could be some fungal involvement or other cytological changes that would be important to pay attention to. So repeating the cytology can be helpful. Um, I did just want to spend a second talking about a diamond burr technique, which is shown to be successful in helping to um, improve ulceration, healing of um, horses with non-healing ulcers. The lovely study from a few years ago now showing the um, benefits of using a diamond burr debridement is a really lovely technique, something that is far less is far less freehand than using a grid keratotomy with a needle, and it enables really careful and subtle. Um, treatment of the ulcer bed and there was a really lovely um, rates of uh, improvement in ulcer healing compared to the uh, period before the ulcers were treated these horses kind of acted as their own control um, I think it's probably not that I have many dental similes in my entire existence but I suspect it's probably similar to these um, using electro electrical um, motorized devices as opposed to tooth grasps. And you'll be delighted, Sarah, that I've included a dental analogy. Here we can see one in action with a really um, substantial uh, rostral nasal corneal ulcer here. The, very, the one thing that they do react to is their tears. Their tears kind of flick up and bother other bits of the eye that aren't desensitized, but it's a really lovely technique. And um, those of you perhaps in bigger practices might be using. Um, than already or where you've got a, an interest in ophthalmology cases. Yeah, <laughs> where's the emoji for I love this? 
I can't even tell you how much it has revolutionized the way that we treat indolent ulcers in horses. And I'm just trying to find the best way to be able to publish what we have um, achieved and what our experiences have been over the last few years. The advantage of the tarsorophy is that we create a stable environment where the through diffusion, you have the conjunctiva of the inside of the eyelid in contact with the ulcer, enabling rapid ulcer healing from the point of view of diffusion of um, important nutrients from that conjunctival tissue. Um, it's a very simple procedure that can be done standing. I haven't included the how-to. Definitely, if you haven't done very many of them, have the practice on a few cadavers first. And if you're used to putting eye makeup on, you're trying to place your mattress sutures through the bit where you put the eyeliner when you're doing your lower lid. So that helps. You literally need it to be exactly in that location, and it's worth removing and replacing the sutures if you haven't quite managed to get them in exactly that place. Otherwise, you will either the eye or create a suture that a suture reaction that's too close to the cornea. So where the eyeliner goes, it's very straightforward um, procedure. Obviously, we need a catheter to be in place if we're going to do this technique. Um, but the other reason I think that we have found such success with it in terms of uh, resolution of what were previously indolent on healing ulcers is the fact that we keep the eye stable, a bit like with a, um, a distal limb wound, for example, and we're trying to immobilize the area to promote healing. I think the same thing happens here. We don't have that kind of windscreen wiper action of the upper lid uh, over the top of the ulcer, which is destabilizing the epithelial um, um, epithelialization at that site. So um, something to consider, perhaps, and I'll happily um, talk through any questions people might have about that or contact via email after the lecture. Um, I don't do it straight away. If I've done a bit of Dubai and taken some cytology the first time I've looked at an eye, I would wait 24 hours, make sure that anything that I have done to the eye, it hasn't aggravated it, that the eye is comfortable and settled. Um, I would leave a tiny little gap at the um, nasal aspect so I can just have a little bit of a look at the cornea just to make sure that um, things are stable and healthy. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to find the best way to be able to publish the rapidity of, of ulcer healing. We don't have an RCT to be able to answer the question in the most rigorous way possible, but I think it is worth um, discussing further. So from a corneal ulcer point of view, proper examination, an AP block, sedation, something to put the head on. Give yourself a chance to do a really thorough exam rather than getting bored really quickly because your back sore and you're squatting down on the floor. The majority of cases are going to heal quickly and simply for corneal alteration. Um, consider lavage catheters in the lower lid, have a go at practicing, and perhaps consider a tosorophy um, for some of those um, case indolent cases. Okay, just a few tips for a closed eye. Um, just a few things to kind of roll through for the last few minutes. Um, again, really important to consider restraint. I mean, these are undoubtedly going to be painful eyes. Take a really good history. The sorts of things that start to run through my head are um, whether there has been any head trauma or what the, you know, are there any other abnormalities in terms of the whole animal, in terms of any neurological signs, and in terms of the, um, the skull and the head itself that could um, be relevant to why this was presenting to you with a closed eye. Um, provide some analgesia. And I also put dexamethasone in here that should I be in a position where the animal was pretty stable, or otherwise is pretty comfortable, otherwise, um, sorry, in terms of doesn't have any other lesions that I'm concerned about, it's just a single swollen eye that I'm struggling to get to. 
then I would think about giving some systemic dexamethasone should you feel risk-wise that that was an appropriate thing to do. Um, I think we shouldn't underestimate the benefits of this type of systemic um, therapy. I know with eyes, we always think about topical first and limiting the exposure of the body to those agents to avoid any adverse consequences. But sometimes the amount of swelling is quite substantial. And within a very, very quick period of time with a single one-off soluble dexamethasone, either IM injection, you can be amazed by the profound improvement over that 24 hours, enabling you to get a much better um, view of what's happening. If I have a little chink of cornea at all, then I will see if I can get a dazzle reflex, because even if I can't see very much else, it is reassuring if you, that you have a visual pathway if you can see a dazzle. And even with a lot of blood in the anterior chamber of an eye, we would expect that there would be some dazzle and there'll be a kind of uh, pullback and blink associated with that bright light. Here we have a case, hopefully you can see, I tried to get him at an angle where you can see the blue behind him to see that he has this depression on one side. You can obviously see there's a little bit of um, abrasion on the surface and he actually had an avulsion of his optic nerve. Um, so there'd been such a blunt um, trauma that he ended up with a complete rip out of his optic nerve at the back of his, back of his eye. Also helpful when we're thinking about what, what has happened to this eye, whether there's an underlying um, primary uveitis or not. And a quick little tip to try and help with that would be if you can see and characterize what the pupil is doing. And if it's a dilated pupil and otherwise appears a little bit, you can see to be a fairly quiet eye, we think a little bit more perhaps about blunt trauma or allergy. And again, perhaps you'd expect that to be a symmetrical um, swelling of the eye. Whereas if we have a really myotic pupil, it would make me more suspicious of uveitis or perhaps a stromal abscess, but most likely uveitis sort of changes with perhaps some corneal ulceration, perhaps some laceration or keratopathy also present to be more than that severity of change to result in a big swollen eye. In these kind of cases, we're kind of stuck, aren't we? We can give some dexamethasone, give it 24 hours, come back and have a look if we feel comfortable to do that. But if I could say anything else from this talk to encourage you to do, it would be to use ultrasound with eyes. They are, it is such a straightforward technique to, to get confidence, a little that takes very little time to get confidence in what you would expect to see in a normal eye. And then you can start to see some cool stuff when things haven't gone well that you would otherwise really struggle to identify, particularly with a shut swollen eye. So the image on the left is uh, what we would normally expect to see. So we have eye will scan with KY jelly on the eyelid with an AP block and then um, scan in the vertical and horizontal plane um, through the eyelid. So the eye is pretty comfortable. Again, another thing for having the head on the bail so that it's really at the right level for you to work efficiently. And then we can see, um, if I um, use my cursor, we can see cornea here. Um, in the paper that was referenced at the beginning with that lovely, lovely checklist for an ophthalmic exam, there's also a lovely table which uh, goes through the um, usual measurements, which I haven't included here, but it's a really nice little reference of the usual dimensions of different ocular intraocular structures. So you see here, um, our cornea, then we have our anterior chamber. These little bubbles, as you can see, will be called phrenigra. Then we have our lens here, and depending on the presence or absence of cataracts, you may see um, a range of different epigenicities in the lens. And then we have our posterior chamber, and then paying particular attention, especially with a big, um, swollen, single eye that we suspect has had blunt trauma, we're trying to look at the um, appearance of the orbit. Which, would, which is really apparent with ultrasound to enable us to see whether or not there are any 
discrepancies in a similar way to how we might expect to see a fractured rib. So seeing that um, disparity along the edge of the orbit to suggest where there has been an orbital fracture. If I'm trying to measure the eyes, I do try and look at both eyes in all of my cases, not least because you hopefully have another eye to compare it to that's normal, or you might start to see, if you see cataracts, you can look at the same um, gain settings in both eyes and be able to see how significant they are, how adding one eye is to another. When I'm trying to do my measurements, I try to take them in the same plane, horizontal and vertical, and try and get the anterior and posterior part of the lens in the same image, um, and then relax my hand without too much pressure, so I'm not compressing the anterior chamber, and take those measurements to both sides. Here we have a really cool case. I mean, I really love ultrasound and I especially love ultrasound of eyes for the sorts of things you would otherwise struggle to see or be able to figure out what is happening, especially if there is a lot of change in the anterior chamber. And in this um, image, which I'm grateful for my colleague, Jamie Putton, who, who um, highlighted this, this case for me. In this area here, this is, this is the anterior chamber. Here is our lens. This is our posterior chamber, retina. And this is where the optic nerve is coming down. This, um, this little hyperechoic section here is a little blood clot. And this here is the iris. Here's our cornea. So we actually have the iris in a perforated cornea poking right the way through. And very quickly, you can gain confidence in assessing what the structures are in the normal eye. Hopefully your, your horse hasn't lacerated both corneas at the same time. So you can move across to the other side, have another look, and be able to really gain that confidence in assessing what's inside. A little bit of a close-up there to show you that um, heritage in the anterior chamber. Something else, particularly if we're thinking about the prognosis of some of those blunt traumas and um, abnormalities in eyes where we're struggling to see and look at the fundus in our routine measure with our ophthalmoscope. This is an example of a retinal detachment. And we can see here um, in this section, instead of like our previous images where the retina is sitting here along the um, back of the posterior chamber, here we can see that it has lifted away. The classic pictures in the textbooks are where it's happened um, throughout the retina and you have a kind of seagull shape. But in reality, there can be different reasons why there has been hemorrhage or um, trauma that has created detachment. So it could be that you are seeing this kind of unilateral lesion like this where the retina there's, the retina has detached and there's swelling underneath it, uh, edema underneath it. And then just one last slide on sticky eyes. I do appreciate that the vast majority are going to be conjunctivitis from fly bother or the kind of environment that they're kept in. Hopefully a lot of people these days will have fly moss for their horses, but not everybody. But sometimes these kind of conjunctivitis lesions, particularly if they are associated with ulceration, I would just have in the back of your mind what the discharge looks like. I really love referencing things to food. So when I talk about guttural pouches, I love talking about custard and feta cheese and baby bells. And this is really useful here. There's a little example in a second. But if the discharge that we're looking at in these types of cases, unilateral or bilateral, is more like kind of white crumbly feta cheese as opposed to a cream yellow that you might expect with a standard bacterial conjunctivitis, that really means alarm bells for me for an eosinophilic keratitis. Some lovely papers on this topic but to give you a little bit of information here we can see you can almost see it sticking here everywhere it's quite gloopy it's pretty pale and it's almost particulate and we can see that here is an area of ulceration um, 
and the same debris is sitting almost like a dipsuritic plaque over the top of the ulcer. Here's a close rough image just so you can really get a feel for the colours and consistency of the material. I hope you appreciate it bright pink as if you're sitting on some paint, which they're not unless they're thing. Um, so if you think that this might be what you're dealing with, then either with a swab or a cited brush or literally like scoop the goop into a pot, take some of that material and have a look um, with an H&E stain, difficult stain if you have it, or um, either send the pot or send the um, cited brush in for analysis. Um, they usually very irritated these horses' eyes. So if they are just, they can just be a really small ulcer, but because there is so much irritation from the keratitis, they do develop quite significant ulcers over time. Um, sometimes I think because they're considered to be more of a low-grade ulcer or conduct, standard conjunctivitis at the beginning until it becomes apparent that the, the uh, response has got so much more substantial and so much more irritating. As I say, unilateral or bilateral. And these are classically cases that aren't going to respond to your usual ulcer medication. And it might be that this is your second visit where you're going back or perhaps dread of dread that the client has asked for the eye meds and you haven't seen it. And this is your first time to visit it to see what happened. These need really aggressive steroid therapy and very careful, skillful management to balance the steroid to oppose the eosinophilic component here, which is causing the destruction and the irritation and the ongoing um, lack of epithelialization alongside your standard ulcer treatment. You can succeed with these cases, but they do need often prolonged and very careful balance of therapy, which usually is something that owners aren't going to be able to achieve at home, especially in the first um, few days to weeks of treatment. Just something to consider with those sorts of sticky cases. Here we can see where the ulcer is having been quite aggressive with our systemic and topical steroid alongside uh, the rest of our ulcer medication. So improve the level of inflammation, but still with an ulcer remaining. Okay, thank you very much. I hope I've given you some useful practical tips and some stuff for debate, and I've left us with enough time to discuss things further. Um, please do keep in touch, send me emails. I'm on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Um, it's an excellent community. I found it really fascinating to be part of over the last couple of years. So um, I look forward to, to hearing from you guys and welcome any questions. Thank you very much, Victoria. That was brilliant. Um, and um, yeah, I've, <laughs> I'm not surprised you're glad she's not your eye patient. I know, look at her. <laughs> I mean, how on earth do you get in there? You've got no chance. <laughs> You'd need a pretty decent bail castle, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just while I wait for a few more, a few questions to come in, I got a couple of my own. So do you put an auriculopalbebral block into every eye that you see or rather than just the more painful ones? Because I would usually just stick it in the more painful ones that I was struggling to get to. But is it, yeah. am I missing, am I missing a trick here? Should I just be putting one in anyway? I think it's partly because when you're seeing them for the first time in my head, I'm thinking, is this just a straightforward traumatic little bit of ulceration? Or should I just have a quick look to make sure that there isn't something else there? So as well as looking at the cornea, which might be quite easy to facilitate without the AP block, and thinking about kind of just roll up the lid and have a really good look around. And all of that sort of exam might be better or easier with, um, with the block. But my colleagues aren't all the same. And uh, certainly some of them would say, unless it was a death metastasial or a really, really 
um, painful uveitic eye, but they would feel pretty comfortable not to worry too much. And they feel if they can roll the eyelid up to the mm-hmm. to the orbit and put pressure there, that they're not putting pressure on the globe. But for me, it's just about trying to make, you know, I feel when out on the roads and on stoking horses and things like that, I feel like anything that we can do to make the whole process simple when you've got owners there as well, if it, it just means that it just opens like magic for you to have a look at everything you need to rather than sort of having to fight it at all, then I feel like it um, is an advantage. And, oh. you know, it doesn't cost a lot. You're talking about a couple of mils of local on each side to do both eyes. Um, okay, so we've got a question in from Celia who says, thank you for presenting. She was wondering what your thoughts are on dispensing ointment versus eye drops for owners, which she your preferences. Yeah, I really like ointment for owners to do it themselves. So I would recommend that they put it on a clean finger or a gloved finger and then sweep it into the eye as opposed to trying to balance the two things together. And clearly you might look at someone's hands and be like, there's no way I'm going to tell them to use their hands to do this. But hopefully plenty of your tidy owners, that that is quite a nice technique. So you've got a little bleb on your finger that can be swept into the eye and actually kind of swept into the lower lid and then smooched I down. I usually find it ends up on my fingers anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I think ointment, there is an advantage. And I think I, do you know what would be really good? We've, we've I've been t- talking to a couple of people today about the importance of understanding the lived experience of what we dispense to owners and then ask them to do for themselves at home. And wouldn't it be great just to do a little qualitative thing, study on how owners feel about having to medicate their horse's eyes and which they prefer? Because we kind of guess, don't we? You know, we obviously treat horses ourselves in clinics and hospitals, but we kind of guess which they find easier. Um, I assume that it is ointment because that would be my preference if I was doing it by hand rather than through a catheter. Um, if you had a really easy pony that you could turn the head to tip it up so it wasn't quite such a vertical globe, then drops could easily work. But um, yeah, I think there is an advantage to ointment personally. What do others think? What do you think, Celia? What What do you do, Celia? You're welcome to unmute and chat. I tend to go Hello. for ointment. <laughs> ah, there we are um well I guess I I it's I've always found it hard because I find it hard to use ointment um and sometimes I'll um dig myself a hole and I'll tell the owners oh I'll I'll do this first one for you and even I find it hard on the first go (laughs) um and I find that with eye drops you can kind of just shoot them in um and then but yeah but then they kind of tend to roll down their face quite quickly so I find that ointment's stays in a bit better once you get it in so I was just wondering yeah what what you guys did um, I've never really done the gloved finger technique so I might give that a go instead it does get it it does flick off the glove probably slightly better it's a bit more of a hygienic way to do it I guess if you're not, if you're not sure about the client's hygiene otherwise you know if it's in a, out in a field or something you know give them a box of gloves as well or have a gloves as well thank you thank you very much with the eye drops versus the ointment, um, I, I mean, I would put the ointment in less frequently because it's thicker and I feel it stays in longer. Is is that yeah. is that? I okay? think that's actually the that's the theory really behind their use. Yeah. Um, in in other fields as well, is that there's likely to be um, slower removal from the tear film if they're an ointment based rather than a liquid based. 
It's all right then. It's just checking that my <laughs> twice a day for ointments, four times a day for drops wasn't too far out. <laughs> um, excellent. One of the things that I I have struggled with when I've been asking for second opinions on eyes that I've seen out on yards is eye photography. Do you have any, like all my photos, I have best intentions, even with sedated eyes, I yeah. can never quite show a decent photo of an eye. Um, do you have any tips for how you can take a photo? Because it makes refer it can make getting advice much easier if you can send a decent photo. Definitely. The first thing is if you're trying to look at the fundus, then use the video setting. And because then you can actually let it roll, touch where you want it to focus and it will get really lovely quality images. And actually, if you Google, how do I do that? Then there's some really cool little videos online that will help you with the skills for that. So I would say the same thing can apply to the cornea. So taking a little video, moving it around, you can eat more easily, tap the screen and get it to focus and adjust what you're doing with a short video. And WhatsApp is so brilliant now for being able to transfer that information encrypted end to end securely to the person you want advice from. So a little video is just as straightforward in terms of transition as, as still images. I do agree with still images, it can be difficult because it's such a globe shape that the poor camera is trying the whole time to get the focus right. So I actually would suggest most of the time the macro setting, if you had it, wouldn't really help. So I try and come back further away, a little bit further away, which gives the focus be a better chance of working. And then if I do that, I might be like 10... 10 inches back, you know, further than you think. Okay. That might be a better image or at least the same, but hopefully better than when you were super, super close and trying to get that image because the camera's re the camera struggles to get the focus right. Okay. Well, I'll back off then. Um. <laughs> but the video, um. the videos work really well. And especially if you have dilated the pupil to have a look at and found something cool on the retina that you want someone to have a look at, then videos are so good the images that you'll get will be brilliant and um you can also fiddle about this is what you can find online you can fiddle about by closing off the light and using your own light as well which is easier to do than than how it works with the flash so yeah you, the video techniques can be just as useful and just as easy with whatsapp to be able to transfer to whoever you want to see them okay brilliant um are there any more questions out there um We've had one off Celia. There is plenty of time. Oh, sorry, can... I've got um, a question about atropine drops. Um, so, uh, again, with owners, um, how do you go about, um, let's say you've got a really um, myotic pupil with an eye ulcer, um, how do you go about uh, dispensing atropine drops as well for owners to use for um, a few days along with chloramphenicol and things like that? Um, because I, I find it really hard to explain to them how to monitor for pupil dilation. And sometimes I'm really scared that they're going to overuse it. Or is there really any horrible consequences to overusing mm -hmm. it? They are using a fly mask and covering the eye, etc. Um, so I was wondering what your thoughts are. How we advise on managing it. It's a really good, really good question there. I would um, start by saying that do you make sure that they're aware if they get in their own eye that they, they, they do run the risk of blowing open their own pupil, um, which could be an issue for them. 
Um, so just to be more aware than they would with the others in terms of hunting and safety. Um, it is tricky. People vary in their approach to the intensity and the frequency of treating to get that pupil dilated. I tend to say once an hour until the pupil is open and then a gap, gap of increasing hours after that because patients in the hospital, we can do that and monitor them more easily. And we're not going to be in a position to do that if a client is administering medication. So as frequently as you feel um, they can manage, if it's a really horrid uveitic eye with a really constricted pupil, and it might be that you need, with an eye that's that uncomfortable, I'd want to go and have another look the next day. And that at least gives you one window for you to have a look and see how much difference has been made. Maybe you suggested it four times a day, and then you had a look. The negative systemic effects of atropine probably relate mainly to colic and gut stasis. And they don't necessarily have to have been after a particular number of doses. So it's not a dose-dependent effect. But we have had, over the 13 years I've worked at Lippuk, we have had three cases of colic associated probably with the administration of atropine as opposed to other risk factors. Um, so it is something to be aware of and therefore probably not go hell for leather with every hour for a long time before, before anyone gets to check what's going on. But um, um, a modest amount that is feasible for the owner to be able to place over 24 hours and then having another look would be a, a suitable start point. And then you can make your judgment of what you need to do after that on your, your repeat visit. I think otherwise it can be really difficult for an owner to judge and really difficult for you to predict from one case to the next how reactive and responsive that pupil is going to be to your doses of atropine. Thank you. Thank you. And then Oliver has said, thank you for a great presentation, Victoria. When giving a client EDTA plasma, saline and chloramphenicol for an ulcer, what is a re optimal or reasonable number of treatments to ask them to give of each per day? And what is the shortest time interval they can wait between the different treatments? That's a, well, there isn't a lot of evidence to say what that should be. So um, it is always a really fine balance and every client is going to have a greater or less willingness to follow whatever you say. We do have, I recently went to somewhere where they've been doing every hour up until midnight and starting again at six, five, six in the morning um, in a Sanctuary, sanctuary where they had enough staff to be able to facilitate that but I think that's pretty rare in real life and if you set up too much complexity there's just no way that they're going to be able to, to do that so yeah you're right you end up with this position of wanting to think about how free how um what kind of gap if they're there for an hour I might say could you think you could give it totally depends on the context if you're there for an hour in the morning I would try and get them to stagger it as widely apart as they could for the hour that they're there and pick the things that I think would be the most appropriate in that period of time, including antibiotics at those frequent intervals. You're going to have some clients where they just aren't going to want to do three or four things in that time and others where they'd be perfectly willing to do so. So I think it probably comes down to the individuals and I would try to stagger them as far apart as I could over that period of time when they're with the horse several times a day, if that helps. I mean, you could put them all together five minutes apart, but the worry would be that there wouldn't be enough time for them to take effects before you're washing something else over the top of it. I probably do the, I mean, literally, I could argue in each direction. You could argue that you give the antibiotic glass to leave it present for as long as possible. Um, but if you put those medications through the eye, then it's going to be quite a reaction anyway. So maybe you do it first, 
I don't know, I don't think there's a good evidence-based answer to that. So I would try and apply a strategy that I thought was going to be achievable for the client and try and perhaps think about points of the day where they can stay for a period of time to be able to administer rather than doing and throwing. Does that help, Oliver? I hope that's I hope that's useful. So, something something that I think probably is worth pointing out is at the moment when we place a tarsography, clearly you can't do it on both sides. So we do have examples of one eye that doesn't get treated and one eye that does have a tarsography. So they act as their own control. And you can see very clearly how rapidly their ulcers heal within a week. We usually leave them in place for five to seven days. What I haven't been brave enough to do yet is to try and answer the question of, um, do I still need to give the same frequency of all of those things we've talked about if the tarsography is in place? Probably not, because that conjunctival acquisition is going to put the ulcer in a completely different than it otherwise would have been in terms of requiring different medications. So um, what we haven't done yet is explored if we could really drop the frequency of medication down as well. So I would wonder whether the next steps could be in practice that where we have a stable ulcer, but that we expect is going to take some time to heal in terms of the, the, the um, breadth of the ulcer, the air itself, so the ulcer, whether one of the ways that we might be able to have a solution to the frequency of medication could be one of those other advantages of tarsography that it doesn't need to be done as often. But at this point, I don't think we have um, anything other than personal stories um, about how those things are going rather than anything concrete to base it on, base those recommendations on. So if there's no other questions out there, I would actually just like to second Victoria's um, enthusiasm for the ultrasound and the eye. Um, it, I, it's mm -hmm. just amazing. <laughs> I love ultrasounding <laughs> eyes, <laughs> particularly the ones that you can't open that are really painful and you've got no idea, or the really bad corneal edema where you've just got no idea what's going on. <laughs> Obviously yeah. a thing um but yeah they're it's it's an amazing technique and it is so straightforward yeah um, and i think um even if you were thinking this isn't the context of first aid for eyes but if you thought that you could see a cataract and you were like is it one isn't it one what's like what's going on there if you've got a tent we're talking about a tender linear probe mm -hmm. here so if you've got those in your car i mean you could even do it with a rectal probe couldn't you because it's the same kind of technology then you could have a look make sure you've got the same settings so you're not changing the game between each eye because otherwise you will make something look more or less echogenic. But you can then have a look and see what's going on in that lens. Are there little concentric um, patterns there? Are they both about the same? And if you actually took more time to go back and look at both eyes again, you'd see there were tiny aspects on both sides. You know what would be really cool is you could then say, and your health check, let's have another look. Let's have another scan. And you could monitor those cases that way too. So once you start to use it and get familiar with what's um, what you would expect to see in a normal eye, then there's some really great ways in which we can um, improve the quality of our service service for our clients out on the road by using that ultrasound and ultrasound here. Excellent. So uh, we've not had anything else. Oh. Ah, what are your thoughts, this is from Richard, um, what are your thoughts on contact lenses in healing ulcers? Good, really good question. I have had lim so limited experience because we use because of the fact that we use tarsorophies so once you're doing that mm -hmm. and you've 
you've got the faith that what's going on underneath I'm happy with and that's why I leave that little chink open so I can still see a little bit of cornea in fact I really don't they're only opposed you know there's, there's actually a little bit of a slit that you can see all the way along it's still going to be just as good for the ulcer I feel comfortable not to need it's an advantage of contact lenses you can still see roughly what's happening with the cornea the disadvantage I guess is that they fall out don't they you don't quite know and the owner's who's <laughs> been carrying on diligently and the thing's fallen out you will most of the time be recommending doing a tiny tarsography just to try and hold the contact lens in in the first place so my experience with contact lenses has been where there's been bilateral disease and i can't tarsography both eyes or it ain't going to be able to see and so i've potentially considered using a contact lens on the less severe eye that i have otherwise left open so i think they do probably have a face but um it's particularly if you wanted to try and promote suitable uh, environment for healing, but you couldn't do a tarsorophy for one reason or another, then they would perhaps have a role. But the tarsorophy technique is exactly the same, except you haven't had to pay for contact lens. You know, locals the same, little stitches are going to be the same. So um, I certainly think it's something, something potentially to be explored. Okay. Um so if there are no other questions out there, every time I say that, somebody put, put, pops another one in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. I can talk about this for a long time. <laughs> um, so I think we are done now. Speak now or you'll need to email Victoria. You don't have to hold your peace. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Victoria. That was really interesting and really useful and quite timely at this time of year. Yeah. And with all the flies and the light and the hedges and everything else around. Um, uh, it's been lovely to have you speaking to us. And uh, we will, well, I'll be seeing you again in a couple of weeks anyway for a mm -hmm. meeting. <laughs> yeah. we'll thank, thank you very much again for inviting me to speak. It's an absolute delight to be able to chat to you guys. And I'm always happy to take any inquiries about my cases or anything else medicine orientated. So thank you very much for your, for your attention and time this evening. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.